The topic of my paper is the aftermath of independence, gendering Pakistani history through the lens of Fatma Jinnah. Um, it is an attempt to explore the history of the early decades of Pakistan's independence through the life and works of one of the foremost national heroes of the country. But being a woman, Fatma Jinnah's story in this history is not only sidelined, it is also obscured by the many epithets that she harbors in both collective imagination and in conventional historiography. Um, as the mother of the Pakistani nation, Fatma Jinnah has an ethereal persona by virtue of being Muhammad Ali Jinnah's sister and by her role in partition politics. However, national figures are often appropriated in public imagination for their symbolic significance, and women even more so than men, because women are infused with a spiritual essence that enables their nurturing and feminine qualities to be upheld at the expense of their other contributions. So while Fatma Jinnah and other Muslim women's participation in partition politics has been well acknowledged in historiography as ideal wives and comrades of the men, um, I want to shift the narrative instead by focusing on their political activism after independence, especially in opposition to the state. By taking Fatma Jinnah as the case study and specifically zooming into the early 1960s, I want to discuss that time period in her life when her ire and agitation at Pakistan's politics propelled her to make her radical political debut in opposition to Ayub Khan in the 1965 election. Needless to say, this period comprises a very uncomfortable chapter in nationalist historiography as two of the country's foremost national leaders were at odds with one another. They both presented different narratives and aspirations that linked the Pakistan movement to the election, and in doing so, they severely polarized different political alliances and constituencies. On Fatma Jinnah's part, her sudden and unexpected part in politics shocked people, especially with the loud and bold strides that she was taking. But historically, there has been a silence on this chapter, almost as an apology for an unpleasant situation that should not have turned up. So as I study the agency and autonomy with which Fatma Jinnah participated in politics, along with her political motivations, I make the following arguments. Uh, firstly, I want to show how this period experienced significant controversy which caused fractures in the mother of the nation image for Fatma Jinnah. Secondly, recent scholarship has studied Fatma Jinnah as the new Muslim woman inspired from 19th century North Indian Muslim reform, also referred to as New Islam. And this new scholarship has argued that Pakistan's failure of its new Islamic ideals are what caused Fatma Jinnah's later disappointment. I want to show how she, in fact, used a rather secular and liberal language as she fought for democracy and how other imperatives may have influenced her politics. And on a broad level, studying the election period deepens our understanding about how different post-independence politicians presented their political demands and claims as the continuation of an unfulfilled Pakistan movement, thereby also encouraging us to study the movement and its ideological afterlives as an ongoing process. So while my paper deals with Fatma Jinnah's later political activities, her, um, with her later political life, her activities did not emerge out of a vacuum. There is a lot of historical baggage involved, especially as her life spanned across rapidly changing political contexts as decolonization and partition happened. So to give a quick background, she belonged to a Khoja family, and she grew up and received education in Bombay. Once she attained her degree, she opened up her own clinic and also started contributing vigorously to social service in, in Bombay. Um, it is important to note that Fatma Jinnah's background was not North Indian, where new Islam and Muslim reform was a central intellectual discourse among the Muslim Ashrafia class. 
She grew up instead in Bombay, which had a distinctively strong civil society that was developing liberal nationalist critiques in response to the colonial state. Its public culture comprised a proliferation of voluntary societies, specifically with the aim to uplift and improve the disempowered masses. Prashant Kidambi argues that this kind of sacrificial social activism in the pre-Gandhian era began a novel form of civic asceticism among Bombay's elite in a quest for public leadership. Incidentally, I believe that growing up in such a city had an influence on Patmajana's political and social thought. She, for instance, was more concerned with her um, social work in Bombay than in participating in other Ashraf Muslim women's organizations at this time, which were fighting for their rights as Muslim women. In fact, Bombay's language of sacrificial social work, of empowering the people, and resisting intrusive state infrastructures are all themes that prominently came up in Patna's social and political activism after independence. Uh, as nationalist politics gained momentum, we are already aware of her role in that she subordinated her work to Jinnah's political agenda and gained public visibility in Muslim League committees as she rallied other women to Jinnah's cause. Once partition happened, she, along with other women leaders, took up the reins for social work, especially as millions of refugees started pouring in and needed to be resettled. By founding the Women's Relief Committee, along with being the nucleus of literally hundreds of other social welfare organizations, Fatma Jinnah worked at the forefront of the kind of social activism that Bombay had witnessed in the early 20th century. The, this time, these efforts collectively came under the rubric of nation building. Now, after independence, Fatma Jinnah had breaked her political activities. Jinnah had died, and she was single, so she occupied herself in social work. But this did not stop her from harboring scathing opinions about politicians of the day. She was extremely critical of the Muslim League politicians for their authoritarianism, for suppression of human rights, and for delaying key nationalist issues such as drafting the constitution. She lamented the plight of the country, the ways in which it had deviated from its earlier ideals, and opined that the country which had been created for the ordinary citizens was now solely catering to a class of selected influentials. She also publicly raised her voice on the government's mishandling of partition refugees' resettlement and their evacuee property allotment, and over the protection of Bengali rights of political representation. Now, Fatma's disillusioned and rebellious opinions were not entirely in keeping with her maternal and patriotic image, and this was often cause enough for the political leaders to be wary of her. She herself was aware of this dislike and remarked to her secretary that the government was only keen to project a certain image of her as the revered sister of Jinnah, but it censored her radio addresses when she would be critical towards the state, and they kept her under surveillance and strict police scrutiny. So Fatma chose to mark her agency by her absence from the political sphere. But by the time EU promulgated martial law in 1958, Pakistani state was in such shambles <coughs> that there was nationwide relief that he would offer respect <coughs> for Muslim League's politics and unstable governance. Padmajana also extended support to Ayub. However, his desire to bring stability, national development, and modernization led to an authoritarianism and imperialistic chauvinism that was all too familiar given the nation's colonial past. Um, it is well known how he accumulated power in his own hands. He banned political activity, clamped down on fundamental rights, and executed crackdowns on student politics and media. And even when martial law was lifted, political power still resided within Ayub, and he devised his controversial basic democracy system, which was in an indirect system with voting rights delegated to uh, intermediary representatives of public opinion rather than via direct ballot. His reason was again the familiar colonial argument that Pakistani public was not yet ready to develop informed opinions. 
Ayub's government was backed by views on progressive liberal Islam, which included promulgating pro-women social reform laws, such as the Muslim Family Laws Ordinance, which was actually in line with the new Islam ideals, and which was backed by women activists who had been striving for their rights since pre-partition. Had Fatma's political aspirations only been progressive Islam or Muslim women's rights, she would have been satisfied. However, she had started becoming deeply dissatisfied with Ayub's regime for his anti-democratic ethos and capitalist development which caused severe income inequalities and disempowerment of the common man. So early enough, she reversed her opinion on Ayub and concluded that he was no different from previous political leaders and was rather an opportunist and power seeker himself. And naturally, when she publicly started criticizing his government, Ayub was not going to take it lightly. So in a series of letter correspondences, he respectfully asked her to stop voicing her criticism and instead educated her about the role she should be playing in Pakistani society. So given her significance as mother of the nation, hers was a position to nurture the nation, and he incited her to instill hope and continue to render support to his regime instead of causing this chaos. Um, as Ayub continued to silence her Fatma's criticism, her agitation became unconstrained as she tried to explain to him that in a democratic republic she should have freedom of expression. But suddenly, these very correspondences with Ayub Khan had managed to reawaken her political ambitions. Now, under the 1962 constitution, the first presidential elections were to be held in 1965, and by 1964, five different opposition parties had joined hands, including the leftist National Awami Party and far-right Jamaat Islami. And while they had nothing in common in terms of political and religious agendas, they stood together to bring Ayub down. To lend credence to their opposition, they approached Fatma to take up the mantle as, she, uh, uh, as the combined opposition party's candidate. And while Fatma Jinnah had always held severely critical views on Jamaat Islami and its orthodox Islam, there was now a dramatic reversal of roles as she allied with the same ideology that she had been speaking out against for so long. And in the most bizarre political twist, Jamaat Islami too passed a fatwa to allow a woman to stand for election even when it had so vehemently stated in the past that the head of the state must be a Muslim male. So political necessities prompted these politicians to side with whatever other ideological parties in order to achieve their own goals. Meanwhile, to Ayub and his associates who had not been taking the opposition seriously were now taken aback with Fatma Jinnah's entry in politics. To look through the language of her election campaign, I will read portions of one of her speeches in Bihar to show, firstly, her secular and liberal tone as she advocates for democracy and civil rights, Secondly, how she perceived and presented the election campaign as the continuation of an unfulfilled Pakistan movement. So typically, her speech would start with a rhetorical reference to the Pakistan movement and the people's participation in that. So she would say, um, I quote her, standing in your midst, my mind goes to the time when 24 years ago, the representatives of Muslims of the subcontinent adopted in this city the historic Pakistan resolution at the session of the All India Muslim League. Lahore made history and gave a lead which changed the face of the subcontinent. Today, 17 years after the inception of Pakistan, you are again faced with a critical situation and you have to take a momentous decision. The problem before you is to create conditions which will enable you to work for realization of the ideals and for which Pakistan, ideals for which Pakistan was brought into being. When you adopted the Lahore resolution, you had before you the vision of a state in which every citizen would be treated as a decent human being with rights and responsibilities, in which everyone would be assured of fundamental rights, equality of opportunity, and basic necessities of life, whatever the cause that vision has not been realized. 
She would also target EU's capitalist ideologies by saying that crores of rupees are stated to have been spent on developmental projects, but where is the sign of prosperity? She asked if it should be sought in the luxurious lives of a few fortunate families, while the vast masses of common people continue to live in abject poverty and misery. And I'm quoting some more here. Uh, she says, there is today a wide cleavage between the people who want free democratic institutions and between the cliques of rulers who want all powers in their own hands and who are trying to set a facade of democracy. They have arrogated to themselves all the patriotism and claim that they alone and no one else understands what is good for the country. Today they have discovered that democracy does not suit the genius of the people. On the contrary, it is a recorded fact of history that without people's clear understanding, Pakistan could not have been achieved. Um, and she would end with a reminder that we worked hard and fought for Pakistan so that we and the coming generations may live in freely and in honor, to lead simple, honest lives, not to suffocate in an environment with fear and corruption. Let us therefore build that real Pakistan as dreamed by a hundred million people. Um, here are some newspaper clips from her uh, campaign. So, reassert sovereignty to realize Kai's dream. Ms. Fatma Jinnah reminds people of Kai's motto, need of the R is moral strength. Now, in Ayub's dictionary, the real Pakistan meant a strong uh, central government and stability of the country to protect its sovereignty and territorial borders from India and to ensure steady development. His stance was that Jinnah stood for Muslim nationalism and the need of the R was for Pakistani Muslims to unite their regional differences instead of exaggerating them, whereby he accused the op opposition to be doing the latter, especially with its support for the Pakhtuns and ethnic nationalism. But the challenge presented by Fatna Jinnah was not to be consumed easily by Ayub, especially when a woman was setting out to question his power. Given the respect Fatma Jinnah ha held nationwide, Ayub naturally was going to try different strategies to bring her down. One way he did this was to continue to pay his respects to her as mother of the nation, yet to highlight her naivety by arguing how she had fallen prey to the manipulation and exploitation of sinister opposition parties. He would make statements about Fatma Jinnah's excessive ignorance, as we can see in the statement up there. Um, his second strategy was to attempt to disqualify her through the help of other ulema's fatwas to declare Fatma Jinnah's nomination as un-Islamic. Other gendered mockery in his propaganda included claiming that Fatma Jinnah's vision was based on emotionalism and that Pakistani masses should prove how, instead of being sentimental, they could use their reason and intelligence to vote for Ayub and his scientific developmental agenda. The third strategy was to outrightly claim her party members, which included the National Awami Party, to be disruptionists and anti-Pakistan, thus leading him to make claims such as a vote for Ms. Jinnah suits India and Ms. Jinnah's election will be national suicide. By the time elections were near, Ayub did not mince any words, and I will give one statement of his as an example. A newspaper reported that in a speech, the president severely criticized Fatma Jinnah, saying that she had deviated from Pakistan ideology, and in her mad lust for power, the president said Ms. Jinnah had lost desire for the prosperity of country. She has unfortunately been joined in her efforts by people who are the enemies of Pakistan. And here are some headlines from Ayub's campaign. So, sovereignty at stake, says Ayub, call to uphold Pakistan ideology, stress on Muslim nationalism, uh, and many others.
So to Ayub's accusations against the unpatriotic and disruptionist elements in the opposition, Fatma Jinnah responded by saying that patriotism is nobody's monopoly and that being in positions of power did not confer on them a prescriptive right to question other people's patriotism simply because they held a different opinion. But it was not just Ayub Khan and the Pakistani state's propaganda to bring Fatma Jinnah down. The public too had to cater to many conflicting opinions given that Fatma Jinnah was the sister of the founding father and there was an inherent spiritual significance even in her name. On the other hand, she was a woman trying to gain the highest office in the land which was supposedly un-Islamic and the controversy around this can be seen in all of these news, news clips. Jamaat members' resignation, differences over Madhudi's fatwa, women cannot be head of the state, nomination of Ms. Jinnah, un-Islamic, etc. Um, those who... Uh, those who wanted to see a greater role of <coughs> religion in Pakistani state also felt that Fatma Jinnah was not addressing any of their religious concerns. On the other hand, those who supported her views on liberal democracy were also perplexed by her backing because she was backed by religious orthodoxy. So people were also deeply torn about supporting Fatma Jinnah over Ayub as the latter had demonstrated capabilities in modernizing and developing Pakistan, uh, no matter if his regime became dictatorial in the process. The women's constituency was also divided because while they had initially themselves pushed Fatma Jinnah to stand as the opposition candidate, prominent women activists such as Jahan Arashan was over there, uh, they also ab abandoned the opposition when Jamaat Islami included demands for repealing the Muslim Family Laws Ordinance in its agenda. So the public for the most part faced many dilemmas and even though both leaders received massive support in constituencies of their strength, this did not mean that the period was devoid of controversy and equal amounts of opposition. Some letters addressed to Fatma Jinnah and those published in newspapers also give a glimpse into the kind of reactions the public had. One letter, for instance, questions her why she is not making any claims regarding Islam and Sharia in her campaigns. So the, the, this letter says, You have come out of your long solitude to campaign for and establish democracy and Islamic ideology. You have said much about democracy, direct elections, and sovereignty of the people, but not so much about Islamic ideology under which sovereignty belongs not to the people, but to Allah. One who bears true allegiance to Islamic ideology will find it difficult to fit democracy of your conception squarely into that ideology. The most important point about sovereignty is that whereas the sovereignty of the people is determined by a majority vote, sovereignty of divine fundamentals remains unaffected even by a 99% adverse majority vote. It ends with, would you kindly review your stand on democracy come Islamic ideology and see that in your further campaigning you do not damage Islamic ideology to which Pakistan is indebted to its creation and establishment. And it is indeed true that Fatma Jinnah made absolutely no references to religion except countering Ayub's capitalist policies by arguing for Islamic socialism. But in most other matters she remained elusive and vague when it came to religion. On a questionnaire that both Fatma and Ayub were interrogated, a question was asked whether on becoming president she would enforce the Islamic law to which Fatma Jinnah replied, which Islamic law? Mm -hmm. When she was pressed to list the steps she would take to build an Islamic constitution, she replied that the country was an Islamic republic, it belonged to the Muslims, and its constitution was meant for them. Beyond that, she did not understand what is meant by an Islamic constitution. Uh, besides religion, there were other kinds of responses from the public too. One letter, uh, for instance, criticized her 
for her political ambitions and activities. It says, uh, I, as an admirer of Kaidazam and your good self, consider it my sacred duty to urge upon you not to get yourself involved in the mire of political controversy. It will be a definite disservice to the cause that you hold dear. I respectfully point out that your mission is being better served from your present position as only the sister of Kaidazam and not as an ambitious and power-hungry woman. Um, some people were also inevitably distressed at the spiritual significance that Fatma Jinnah held and the way in which stooping down to practical politics was rupturing her as the ideal woman. Um, uh, so this quote, this letter here says, the entry of Miss Jinnah into the quagmire of practical politics was not only unsagacious but inopportune. Making nearly half the nation her opponent, it lowered her position as a symbol of national reverence. If her presence in political life was important, Kaid himself would have appointed her in the cabinet. And there were numerous other letters such as these. Now, contrary to the pro-AU portrayals of the election given in national media, I will end this section by using an excerpt from an international <coughs> coverage because in its anti-AU <coughs> sensationalized way, it sums up this election period. So this Times New York titled, uh, article titled Trouble with the Mother from December 1964 reports that what upset Ayub was that Fatma Jinnah looked so good in pants. The more she upbraided Ayub, the louder Pakistanis cheered the frail figure in her shalwar. By last week, with Pakistan's first presidential election only a fortnight away, opposition to Ayub had reached a pitch unequaled in his six years of autocratic rule. White-haired Ms. Jinnah, 71, the candidate of five ragtag and usually disunited opposition parties, was picked mainly because she was the sister of the late revered Muhammad Ali Jinnah, but Pakistan's response to her razor-tongued attacks on Ayub's high-handed ways has surprised and shocked the government. Despite heavy support in rural areas where many Muslim electors particularly disapprove of a woman's candidacy and where Ayub's economic reforms have helped more than in the cities, Ayub is running scared because candidate Jinnah has managed to focus every form of discontent in the country. To break her bandwagon, he abruptly decreed that election, elections should be held in January instead of March, explaining lamely that the situation is a little tense. <laughs> As for Ayub, he plainly regretted ever calling the elections in the first place. For after six years of insisting that Pakistanis were not ready for democracy, the campaign had shown that Muhammad Ayub probably <laughs> isn't either. Uh, Fatma Jinnah eventually lost to Ayub Khan in the electoral, electoral college by 55 versus 25%. There were widespread accusations of rigging, but I will not go into those details now. Suffice it to say that Fatma Jinnah did win in Dhaka and Karachi constituencies. So one wonders what might have been the future of East Pakistan if Fatma Jinnah had come into power given the support she had from the Bengalis. But on a more empirical level, we can no doubt see the influence of Fatma Jinnah's politics in the massive anti-Ayub and leftist protests that toppled his regime in 1968 and allowed the rise of PVP. This election period reminds us that despite popular narratives about national heroes and their patriotism, there may be periods when they are embroiled in public controversy, especially if it happens to be a woman. Because women are only allowed to participate in patriotic politics when there's a national emergency, but not beyond that. But eventually, with the discovery of their political agency, prominent women may start treading on political trajectories which were unforeseen by the men. So this election illuminates us about the roles that are expected of the mother of the nation and how, by breaking through those expected maternal and spiritual ideals, Fatma Jinnah eased the public towards accepting future women leaders in politics. 
And on a broader level, it encourages us to study the varied aspirations which were tied to the Pakistan movement, one of which was not just to realize some utopic Islamic ideals, but also a more basic desire for democracy and political representation. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to end with like my favorite letter. Uh, it says, you will denote, donate Pakistan prosperity and peace by your sublime prayers rather than all this tangle of presidential affairs. I humbly request you to reject or withdraw candidature. It does not become Madhuri Milit. <laughs> Madam, I approach with a request to reject all earthy matters, these dust <laughs> particles, and kindly perform Hajj pilgrimage <laughs> to Mokhans. <laughs> <laughs> and there were two, three other letters which evoked the same sort of emotion that you should cleanse yourself, you should recite the root, you should fast, and you should cleanse yourself because you have become corrupted. <laughs>